one gave me that guitar. Amazing moment. So I, I usually just pick it up and see what comes out. It's, uh, it's the kind of instrument that you sort of just let it decide what it wants to do. You know, you just hit a note and go, where should I go now? Certainly a sweet, sweet toy there. So I, I wanted to mention because people are kind of coming and going, uh, that that I am supported purely by Donna today, just your generosity, your donations. So if you're going to leave early or anything, if you can, people use the what do we, we use the bowls. The, yeah, there's the the basket. Uh-huh. There's well, there, there's the two bowls uh, in the walkway yeah. that uh, one supports the center, and then and they're pretty clearly marked. One says community or, or sangha, and the other says teacher or teaching. Yeah. And so uh, the bowl, the basket rather, that is um, designated for the teacher will you know all the money there will go towards uh, supporting Kevin and you know. He drove down here from the East Bay, and we really appreciate him coming. Yeah. This is his primary uh, source of income, and uh, and then our center is also you know run completely on the generosity of others, and you know we're uh, uh, really struggling with stability and sustainability um, in this. And you know, I mean, there's certain aspects of. Donna and trying to live this, I mean, as Kevin knows, and I know from my own, just my teaching as well, to try to live solely on Donna um, is a challenge, and it's a challenge that the Buddha gave uh, gave to the, the monastics to both keep this interdependence of, you know, uh, teachers and monks um, and nuns kind of staying engaged, so there's a dependency, there's an interdependency. And the same thing with this center. This center uh, is dependent on its participants. And just as, hopefully, uh, this can be a refuge, as Kevin was mentioning, for uh, its participants, for those of you who come here. And so just to be thinking about that, um, both in regards to Kevin and, and his uh, uh Dedication to this practice and recovery and Buddhism, and um, also this center and its dedication to uh, uh, providing a no fee for service uh, uh, place for you to come. So just to keep that in mind, there's there's several ways you can donate. Actually, even to Kevin or to myself or or to the center. Um, I must say to myself. <laughs> Come back on Sunday. No, but, uh, seriously though, you can um, you can put just cash or check in the in the uh, the baskets, or you can go online and you can actually donate um, at the uh, what's it called? Network for good, and so there's just on the on online there's a there's a place you can just donate the button and it says donate, and then you can actually specifically say Kevin Griffin and, and give any amount. So, thank you. And you know, I, I do teach some places where it's a fee or it's by the person, 
and it, and it's different. It it feels different. It's you know, if, if I'm getting paid by the person, I'm kind of talking, but I'm counting how many people are there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just there's kind of a shift there from just like oh, help, you know, just giving in the heart. So I wanted to um, move into a piece uh, about the joy of letting go. Um, so, so a lot of this work, uh, there's uh, to uh, talk about uh, so a couple of the ways that I'm thinking about this work of finding joy and recovery. That one aspect of it is that we need to uh, create the conditions for our own happiness, which means that there are some things we need to change, right? And we need to kind of focus on, oh, what's not working in our lives and kind of uh, do that work. But another aspect of it is seeing, and what I've somewhat been focusing on this morning, is just seeing what's already there that we're not paying attention to or we're not giving our full attention to. Um, so I'm just going to read uh, this little piece, which is early in this, in this book, and it's just called Giving Up. I woke up happy on June 7, 1985, the first time I'd felt good in the morning in at least six months. You wouldn't think I'd have been in a very positive state of mind after getting fired from a gig the night before I was a musician and coming home to sleep off a hangover. But somewhere between the last beer and first light, I had given up. I'd given up drinking, I'd given up pot, I'd given up cocaine. Like any big letting go, this one had been a long time coming. I've been trying to control my drinking and using for many, many years, and even as my addictions had persisted, I'd pursued spiritual answers to my life's problems. That morning, the battle between my addiction and my spiritual longing resolved itself in the deep and profound letting go of surrender. And in that surrender was great joy. The joy, the Buddha explains, is the result of letting go of craving and clinging. It's all right there in the Four Noble Truths, the starting point of all Buddhist teachings and insights. Clinging causes suffering, letting go brings freedom. But for an addict, this concept can seem beyond our comprehension. When we're driven by the compulsion to drink and use, to eat or gamble, to control others or to be loved by them, the answer seems to be just the opposite. We need to try harder, strive more fiercely, grasp tighter. We have to have it, whatever it is, or we'll suffer. So there I was in my cottage in Venice Beach, California, a beautiful June morning, and I was smiling. Broke, unemployed, and happy. Once again, proving the Buddhist point that happiness doesn't come from stuff or from success or from pleasant experiences, but from our attitude, our relationship to what is. The specific cause of my happiness that morning was the feeling of relief that I didn't have to try to control my drinking and using anymore. I hadn't realized how much of a burden that effort was, day after day, year after year, going back to my early 20s. I was 35 at the time. Although I hadn't been able to imagine living without booze and pot, now, like a curtain being lifted, I saw clearly that there was nothing to fear and everything to gain, that getting loaded had stopped being fun a long time ago, and that the fear of stopping and the compulsion to keep using 
were all that had been left to keep me going in my addictions. Finally, having the courage, or whatever it was, to let go, allowed me to enter into this moment of joy and freedom. When people talk at 12-step meetings about their early recovery, it's often about the struggles to stay clean, the problems they were faced with, and the devastating wreckage of the past they had to face. All of this is real, but equally real is the great relief of letting go. The first principle of finding happiness is to notice it when it's here. When looking for joy in recovery, the first place we find it is in this relief. That's why many people, when they discover the joy of dropping their addiction, start to give up other unhealthy habits, like smoking or eating lots of junk food. We may find ourselves taking a whole new approach to our lives, looking for things to give up. In the Buddhist tradition, this is called renunciation. And although in our culture that term seems to have negative connotations of deprivation and asceticism, from the standpoint of the second noble truth, it's the clearest way to happiness. <coughs> That's why the monastic life is built around simplicity, letting go of many of the supposed comforts of life. What the monastics know and what people in recovery have insight into is the truth that happiness doesn't come from the things we have, but from the abandoning of the things we cling to, the things that hold us down and capture our minds. But the letting go the Buddha emphasized the most wasn't really the material things or even our addictive habits, but our addiction to self. Just as the 12-step literature says, it is self-centeredness, self-obsession, self-seeking that causes us the most suffering. And it is facing this deepest human addiction that is our greatest challenge in the spiritual journey. To begin to face this challenge, the Buddha offers a simple practice. Notice when you were thinking, and let the thought go, and come back to the breath. Thoughts, thoughts are the source of selfing, and letting go of thoughts is the way to let go of self. When we experience the brief, brief relief of dropping a thought, what we are experiencing is the joy of no self, of relinquishing our attachment to I. So while the road to recovery begins with giving up our drug or behavior of choice, this is where it is leading, to giving up the self-centered focus of all our thoughts and actions. This is why the 12 steps resolve themselves with service, carrying the message, because that is about helping others and taking the focus off ourselves. So I thought I might ask people to reflect for a moment. And then let's just do this you know, with our eyes closed. Uh, making the assumption that people here are in some stage of recovery, whether it's early or further down the line. I'll ask you to think back to a time early in your recovery, whether it was that first day or your first few days or months. And see if you can remember a feeling of relief, of happiness, of peace or joy that came simply from giving up, from giving up the behavior, 
giving up control, giving up struggle. Can you remember, or maybe if you're early in recovery, can you feel right now that aspect of your recovery, the joy of giving up? love it if anyone would share any kind of an experience they may have had or just memory of feeling happy just because you've given up. for something you weren't conscious of. So, for me, again, it's, it's very recent and it's an intangible, but just as compelling and imprisoning as anything else. Yeah. So, that's yeah, thank you. And, and I think partly what you're describing is the joy of insight. Insight, the Buddha says, is really the f- f- highest form of happiness, is to have clarity and, and uh, see the truth. And, and it's natural that in seeing the truth that we let go. That's kind of just what's been Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I've actually kind of Notice is my 
service positions and meetings and the greatest Well, yeah, and I think it's natural and sometimes probably wise to be a little rigid early in recovery because our uh, habitual way of being, you know, has just taken us in the wrong direction. And this is why I like having a sponsor or someone who's kind of guiding you and just kind of doing what they say and going to meetings and doing what they say there. it can be really helpful because we just don't have good decision-making skills. <laughs> you know, that's basically what, you know, that's how we got into the trouble we got into. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with kind of trying to stick to a pretty clear program. I guess what I would say is that if you can connect with it with the attitude of kind of just being carried rather than you are doing it. (laughs) More like, oh, I don't have to make decisions. Great. You know, this is easy. All I have to do is show up and follow instructions. You know, and, and I'm surrounded by support. And, you know... Everybody's pulling for me and guiding me and, you know, just trusting that. That's, it's, it's you know, in 12 steps, it's a third step, turning it over. Acceptance, uh, not controlling the results of our, uh, just doing the right thing and then letting go of the results, all of that. Um, so uh, that's one place where I think you can maybe connect with with it not being a tense kind of fear-driven thing, but more, more really the opposite. Um, you know, we aren't in control, and and it's an illusion that we are. So. Uh, you know, getting into this this sense of trying to control it is just uh, adding something. Um, what? There's something else that came up. But, uh, 
nothing, nothing else comes to mind. But you know, I, I do. You know, I, I really. I mean, I relate to what you're talking about because I very much when I got when I finally committed to the program, which was not, I got sober and I didn't commit to the program for about a year. Fortunately, I didn't drink in that time. But when I finally committed to it, I did kind of just start to do what people said. And at a certain point, I mean, oh, the, the thing that, I was, that was occurring to me was that for me there was a sense of almost innocence or being kind of childlike. Like, oh, you know, I'm not the big, strong person who's running everything. I'm just like somebody who's, you know, being taken care of. Uh, and that, that lasted a, a long time. You know, it was probably not until I was maybe 10 years sober that I started to um, trust myself more. Uh, maybe that's not true, I don't know. But at a certain point, I realized, way down the line, I realized that I had a sponsor who couldn't let go <laughs> of controlling me or of, or, of, or of treating me as though I was a newcomer. And that was, that was a critical point in my recovery, too, where I realized, wow, there's a way in which we can become uh, um, undermined, you know, in which the recovery programs can kind of suggest that, oh, you can't trust yourself. And I think that's true early in recovery. I couldn't trust myself. But at a certain point, I could. And why would I want to work a program that kept me forever infantilized? You know, that that doesn't really make sense. But, but it's a tricky thing because if, you know, when ego kicks in, it's like, oh, I don't need this. I don't have to listen to these people. You know, is that the beginning of relapse or the beginning of another level of maturity? One has to be very careful. Uh, and as I say, I mean, that, that clarity came to me when I was 18 years sober, so it wasn't exactly, you know. When you look at the 12-step literature, it was written by people who were, had like five years Sobriety, so they were the early stuff. So, so they didn't know anything about being 18 years sober when they wrote the big book of AA. I think some of the NA literature shows a little more, more maturity. Does anyone else have a suggestion about that or a comment about that? I just kept thinking about the expression "habits of mind." Yeah, and that. Um, you know, I think like unhappiness and struggle, it, it can be that as a habit of mind that is takes that long engaged practice to accept, be with, you know, gain insight into. For me, that's where I find the joy. I don't understand before there's moments of insight, but it's through examining those habits. Yes, and. Yeah, the, the the connection I make with the, with the twelve steps is that that's an inventory, is exploring those habits of mind, and that, that you know it's not enough to just look at your behavior or your past behavior. 
because a lot of what's under our behavior is our thoughts. You know, maybe all of what's under our behavior is our thoughts and impulses. So, and this is why I think meditation is much more than an 11th step in the 12 step process. I think meditation is part of all the steps. It certainly is for me. And it's particularly important in the inventory process. Because if we don't look deeply into the habits of mind, into the ways that we think in the, in the views and opinions that trap us, in the conditioned responses to things, then we are going to continue to act out that stuff. And, 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 and our, then what follows habits of mind is emotional habits. Uh, because our thoughts and our feelings are so intertwined that we can get trapped in these these thought slash emotional cycles that uh, you know keep us feeling like oh you know I'm not happy I'm sober but I'm not happy or I'm clean but I'm not happy what what's wrong and and so this is what how why we have to get into this level of examination and and being aware and and it's simply it's actually not that complicated a process. I mean, the m- mindfulness meditation is pretty simple in terms of this this mental aspect of noticing thoughts. And we start to, I think of it as a kind of collection of data. We start to catalog the types of thoughts we have. And pretty soon we see most of us just have a few different basic thoughts. You know, there's the, I suck, <laughs> they suck, <laughs> Everything sucks. You know, there's that. And then, this will fix it. Uh, as soon as I, you know, can't wait for, then I'll be okay. Or, oh no, it's all going wrong. You know, it's just basically, you know, it's, it's just like these human things that we do. And so you start to see them, and... And when you bring them into consciousness, when you become aware of them, they're not subconscious, they are conscious, then you actually have a choice as to whether to think them or to believe them or to act on them. And then we can actually start to change. Because every time you don't act on something, you weaken the power of that impulse or that thought. In the same way that every time you act on something, you strengthen the impulse of that action or thought. That's how addiction happens, right? You start with one, you like it, you do it again. At first, it's just something you're doing by choice. Then it becomes habitual, and then eventually it becomes an addiction because this is how the law of karma works. That every time you do something, you strengthen the tendency to do it. Every time you don't do something or don't react to something, you weaken the tendency to do it. So that's the process. I was going to say there's a, I think there's a necessary activity in nerve survival. Right. And that um, it's only through physical survival that you can move past that. Yes. And there was a time in America when I just realized there's, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it was just a process of moving through. And then, you know, I'm kind of realizing that um, I've, I've come from an idea standpoint to an I can and I don't know when that happened and it doesn't really matter but I know that it was only physical sobriety that I could get there and it wasn't 
program started to work. Yeah. Instead of me working at it. But I actually have to work it. Yeah. Yep. I, I completely agree with you. I think what's challenging for us is to know when that's okay. You know, because there are some people who are going to want to get ahead of themselves. Like, oh, I'm okay now. I can take, I can take, you know. And then there are some people who are going to be like, no, I'm never, you know, I'm never. And so part of this inventory, this self-examination is to see what kind of person am I and where what's and so it's like reality check basically and and of course we have people around us hopefully both you know recovery you know whether it's a sponsor or friends or you know family partner um, who, people who reflect back to us and kind of help us to see oh yeah it's time that I can start to do this or yeah I need to be a little more careful and it's you know, there's no real map for that because there's no like diploma and you know, graduate, you know, and now you've gotten there. It's, it's, which is again kind of like any spiritual path or meditations, and like, well, am I enlightened yet? I don't know. <laughs> How long does it take? Yeah. Just there was a few things that came up while you're, this conversation. One was um, this, just the importance of following suggestions, you know, uh, uh, especially in early recovery. Um, and I, I came up with this kind of, I categorized kind of this process a little bit as imitation, regurgitation, and then integration. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people are in their, when they're in the imitation, it's like just follow direction, yeah. like you're saying, you know, like just do what the next right thing is. And don't try to figure it all out because your best thinking got you here, right? Yeah. That kind of idea, yeah. which I think definitely has a place, you know. And, yeah. and the emotional maturity, the uh, recovery maturity, um, that like you were talking about. I mean, you said kind of eighteen years or so, but for you know, I think it's different for different people, right? So you know, and um, but the idea of like, okay, well, maybe at some point, uh, maybe this isn't fitting in the same way. Uh, but the regurgitation part is like, okay, now I'm starting to actually kind of understand what people are talking about. This is what was true for me. Like, I didn't understand anything anyone was talking about. <laughs> I was just pissed off, you know. And I, I was pissed off I had to go to meetings and pissed off I had to listen to you and I had to have a sponsor and I had to get my court card, you know, all that, right? But then the regurgitation is like, oh, I started to hear it. And then I wanted to sound smart or like I knew what I was doing. So then I started to say, <laughs> right? We hear this around a year, a year and a half, mm-hmm. two years right. sometimes. And then the integration is kind of what you're talking about, which is like, so now I feel like I'm starting to integrate this. And I think this is also true with Buddhist practice. I feel like, right. you know, there's this imitation of like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just doing, I'm just coming and sitting down the way that people sit because yeah. that's what you're supposed to do in your spiritual <laughs> And then this like, oh, I heard about the vulnerable truth, so I'm going to talk to you about suffering mm-hmm. on the bus, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> right? And then the integration is like, oh, wow, I really clearly see how I cause my own suffering now. Yeah. And how this process of both recovery and Buddhism, you know, can go hand in hand for freedom, that freedom you're talking about, that kind of letting go and how that's so, I mean, it's just the, the piece you read, too, around letting go, just the not-self, the not-selfing. There's so much self, especially in early recovery, you know, the, and the I can do this. This is what, really, the first step is yeah. so helpful around, like, get out of your own way. Right? Yeah. Take suggestions, sit down, shut up, do the next right thing. 
uh, stop thinking you have it all figured out. Yeah. It's just I mean, the, the beauty and the simplicity of both watching the mind and its habits and or just doing the next right thing, taking suggestions. So I just appreciate that. Yeah. And to, that's what was popping in my mind. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the you know Western models for this this examining the habits of mind is the cognitive behavioral therapy, which I found really useful because it it's essentially uses mindfulness as a kind of tool to you know for, to see what's happening, but then it gives you sort of some some uh, methods for talking back or, or examining, just challenging you know, the, the basic assumptions we have and asking ourselves, is it true that I am a total jerk? You know, or is it true that I am a complete failure? And then you kind of have to talk back to that. Well, is there, is there any way in which I'm not a jerk? Well... <laughs> I made some, you know, I made my wife a cup of tea. Okay. That wasn't jerkness. You know, that was okay. you know, and you just kind of like, you start to just get some balance around it just by that kind of uh, really questioning, uh, you know, that bumper sticker, don't believe everything you think. It's basically cognitive therapy. You know, just funny that we have therapy on the back of our cars for the people behind us. <laughs> Maybe we should put it on this windshield. You know? <laughs> Trying to help everybody else. Because I'm okay. Uh, yeah. It's something to say about the joy of giving up and letting go and you know that was one of the huge 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 hugest things for me when I was in early recovery was the idea that um, you know that now that 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 really the only thing you have to do now is to be here and, and not drink that's the thing you have to do and like all of the personas that you have been trying to manifest so hard and all of the you know it was like for me, the visual is like spinning plates, you know, just mm-hmm. spinning plates and spinning plates and spinning plates, and all of a sudden those plates just all fucking fall on the ground, and you're like, oh, thank God, those no. plates are all broken. Now, yeah. I don't have to spin those plates anymore, and, you know, what an incredible gift that was. And when somebody told me the acronym for SLIP, I was like, this that's what sobriety loses its priority. Uh-huh. And... I mean, that has been, that has saved my life. I had had 18 years in September, um, Mm. and that that is the piece that I always go back to. It's like whenever, because I will continue to tend to build these personas and continue to build these stories about who I am and how I'm doing things, and, um, you know, being able to come back to that place of, like, sobriety loses its priority, sanity loses its priority, (laughs) Spirit, spirituality is yeah. its priority. You know, all of these places where, um, you know, because the world is so much with us mm-hmm. and it's always pulling us to be what it wants us to be and being able to come back into that place and, um, you know, to just to sit down and shut up and even to just listen to your own thoughts and go, wow, such bullshit. 
<laughs> you know, what to do with this piece? So, you know, I just that that for me is a huge piece and continues to be a huge piece. Yeah. Is that the the gift of being able to say this is so this is not my thing. This is not. I don't have to do these things. All I have to do is be here. And, Thank you. Yeah, and you know, I when I hear sobriety loses its priority and the other things, she said, I can imagine that being heard by somebody who is kind of on the outside or like, or as, oh, like, I have to keep this really small world. It's just about staying sober and just going to meetings. What about everything else? And actually, the way I see it is that the meaning of sobriety and spirituality grows to encompass all of life. So that my relationships, my work, my play, my family, all are embraced by that sobriety. For me, sobriety is more than just not drinking and using. It's a it's a, a sacred state. I call sobriety a sacred state, and that 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 sacred state is something I want with me all the time, and I want to take into all of my life. So it's not at all the sense of oh, I gotta like stay really safe. No, I can't do that because it might threaten my sobriety. No, I'm going to do that in a sober way, you know, uh, and and find out what that means. You know. That's a that's a good acronym. thinking about trying to figure out that one moment and then what I kept coming back to is that surrendering in the constant process for me that even after nine years um, it's it's an everyday moment, it's one day at a time it's one moment at a time, it's one breath at a time and that's why I feel like meditation integrates so well with Pulsat because that one breath at a time is what gets me through the day because I, even though you know, I've learned so much and have so many tools available to me, I still go back to those hardwired patterns yeah. of wanting to feel in control, wanting to believe that me striving harder is going to get me what I want. Yeah. And, um, you know, I always have the metaphor of, like, I'm building the runway while I'm landing the plane. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, it feels like that both in, in dealing with recovery stuff, but also that's actually the kind of work that I'm doing as well, so it gets validated. And so the only way that I can survive is to go back to that, okay, I can just do do the next right thing, I just need to do what needs to be done in this moment, and then the next yeah. moment, and then the next moment, yeah. and breathe through it all and go back to, you know, okay, I'm grateful, I'm here, I'm able to, to take the next step. Yeah, I mean, that's it. You know, just seeing the relief of letting go in this moment. Is that's that's the motivation. Is we need a motivation to let go, <laughs> yeah. Because the illusion that clinging or the grasping or getting stuff, having experiences, having pleasures, is going to bring satisfaction is a very persistent illusion, and. 
the idea that giving something up is going to be a loss is also a persistent illusion. So we have to keep uh, reinforcing. And that's why I talk about really noticing that moment of just coming back to the breath and noticing the relief. It might be very subtle, but just this mild pleasure and relief of that letting go uh, to reinforce the willingness to do it. And the, the other thing that, you know, I, the way that I look at this practice, you know, the way the Buddha outlines the Four Noble Truths, he starts with suffering and he says that the skillful response to the truth of suffering is to understand it, which I think means to notice it when it arises, to notice suffering. And so he gives us this practice that helps us to be very aware of suffering. It's like thanks for nothing, you know. (laughs) But he does that because he knows the only way that people really change is when they become aware of their own suffering. And they become aware that something's not working. So he's going to say, pay attention to what's not working, to what hurts. That's the beginning of letting go. You know, that's going to show you, oh, right, that's the place where I'm stuck. That's what I need to work on. And, and you know, what, one of the classical teachings, there's the teaching on how suffering arises, dependent origination, which you know, starts with like not being conscious, not being aware of how suffering arises, and just following this stream of you know, that we do, of like, oh, that feels good, I'm going to get some more of that, and, and then experiencing all this sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, as so succinctly puts it. But the other teaching, the flip side of that, uh, what do they call it? Um, anyway, <laughs> is that we start with suffering and it leads to joy. And this is the 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 way we get out, uh, the way we find freedom is actually by seeing, starting with seeing the suffering. Uh, it's kind of, it's ironic, I suppose, in a way, but that's how it works. If we don't see the suffering, who's going to get sober if they don't realize that it doesn't work? You know, uh, we, Denial is about not seeing your own suffering, in some sense, or suppressing your awareness of it, refusing to look at it, blaming it on others. Whatever, not taking responsibility. You know, when you understand suffering, when you see your own suffering, then you're motivated to change. Uh, and that's why I think the teachings are framed in, in the way they are, and the practice is framed the way it is. Yeah. Stop doing something, just 
doing something that I thought was bringing me freedom that was imprisoning me deeper and deeper and deeper. And so it was just, just, I could finally exhale. Like I was breathing in all this suffering from so majority of my life. And it was like finally, you just said, I could finally experience joy like letting it go. You know, I got all my experiences that I needed. Like, I like intuitively knew I got all these experiences I needed, and now they, they started becoming repetitive. These repetitive patterns. It wasn't like anything new. This is all yeah. old. So it was like, I, it was almost like letting those dead body, you know, like mm. this old shell. You know, it was the lightest I ever felt in my life. I was a heavy person. I looked heavy. I, I mean, I was dark. It was everyone's heavy. And so it was like my light self was experienced, I think, for the first time. And everything looked not good around me, but <laughs> right. inside, you know, it was just yeah. like the first feeling of just true, true freedom, you know, yeah. and lightness being. And the thing that I heard that helped the most, just like you train God, sit, stay, and heal. You're reminding me that uh, there's a treatment center I go to usually once a month in San Rafael. And it's nice. I mean, it's a pleasant, you know, people are kind of happy there. You know? uh, there's definitely a sense of relief. And, and, and of course, it's a community that forms very quickly. A lot of people get very bonded in, re- in treatment centers. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's. Uh, Definitely, I think it's an interesting place to look at. Interesting place for us to be aware of. Yeah. Um, I had a, I was in a center and I <clears throat> left after I graduated and I had, you know, seven months. So it was kind of still a short time. But then I was disconnected from all of the support bubble that I had created and been a part of. And then, you know, life started, life showed up and kind of fell apart and I was still sober and it was kind of like, Right on with this, you know, I'm sober, but everything's about so depressed. I'm not, you know, I'm doing the same things that I was doing before, but I'm sober. Yeah. So it must not be the substance. So then I relapsed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes and, sense to me. Yeah, and then that took me to a darker bottom that I thought I would ever experience. And so then mm-hmm. when I gave up, when I realized, no, that's Wow, okay. 
that's, this is also beautiful and amazing, and it's gonna be extremely uncomfortable for a long time, but I'm okay with that, and just accepting that. It's pretty powerful. <laughs> it's not easy, but I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Well, I, I really appreciate what you're saying. A couple things I can say about it. First of all, you know, I never went through treatment and I was never diagnosed as an alcoholic. So if I wanted to, I could question, gee, am I an alcoholic or not? You know, I don't know. Um, there's no proof, you know. It's not documented <laughs> anywhere. But the question, so, and, and people will even say, well, I don't know if I should call myself an alcoholic, and, you know, because there's no self, so isn't that creating another self? And I'm like, yeah, well, as soon as you get all rid of all your other selves, then you can get rid of that one. <laughs> <laughs> but just notice that if you're laughing, notice that that's how that feels. It's a pleasant moment. Yeah. But what I came to see, it's not a question for me of, am I an alcoholic or am I not an alcoholic? It's, a, it's The point for me is, whether alcohol was the problem or not, life is full of problems. And when I was drinking, I couldn't deal with them. When I stopped drinking, I still had problems. But I had a capacity for dealing with life and life's problems. And that was completely different. You know, so it wasn't whether what came first, you know, the booze or the problems, you know, or the chicken or the egg, it really, that's not important to me. I just know that if I take out the alcohol and drugs, there's a potential to deal. And today I have problems. You know, I'm 28 years sober. I have problems. But, you know, one day at a time I can deal with them. And as you're pointing to as long as we're caught up in the addiction, we don't have the opportunity to go to the deeper stuff, which is not only maybe behind the addiction, but just the stuff that each of us has, or probably at least most of us have, of, of wounds or trauma or you know, our own path that has to be resolved. and, and Without sobriety, there's no potential for for that, and and that stuff in itself, as you say, is really that is a big enough problem. Without throwing intoxicants into the mix, now I'm going to try to figure out my life. You know, I mean, it's just beyond most of us. You know, and so uh, yeah, it, there's layers. It's the onion, or however you want to view it. There's layers of work, and you know. I'm, I'm, I'm aging. Uh, I don't know how about you guys, but... <laughs> and it turns out that there's other problems that come with aging. And even like, I'm experiencing my mental processes. And even like, even in meditation, like, it seems like I have a different mind now, which is a little scary, you know, because it's probably not like getting sharper. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, now what? Yeah. I mean, when I said, so, I said something to my daughter the other day about yesterday, and I was talking about tomorrow. 
I mean, that's really bad. <laughs> when you can't remember the difference between yesterday and tomorrow, <laughs> you're really starting to go into some kind of... And it's not like I'm letting go of time. <laughs> it's just like... Stuff is starting to get mixed up in there. So you could get depressed about that, right? But, well, hey, we can laugh, right? I mean, it's even, you know, when you, we know if you haven't been there, but you know that there are people who, even as they die, are, there's a freedom for them, that there's a letting go. I mean, a lot of times death can be really bad. That's no, that's no joke, obviously. But, but the fact that death, even death, can be a moment of freedom and letting go, shows us how powerful letting go is, and how, how powerful the mind and the possibilities of the mind to transform any experience into something of value. Not necessarily pleasant, but of value and meaning. That's, uh, that to me is a huge inspiration. It's a huge inspiration to practice and to train my mind as best I can. I, I'm not uh, making any guarantees about my own death. But, uh, you know, that's, that's in some ways kind of the, I mean, it is the end game of spiritual practice. And, and, uh, and it's, it's, integra- it's actually in practice, in every moment, is, is uh, confronting death. One one of my teachers, one of my in my early days of practice, kind of asked this question about pain. What is the process of pain? And what she was getting at was that was that our relationship to pain is really like our relationship to death. Is that is um, the the uh, fear of that which we don't control. The fear of of uh, of having uh, discomfort, of having loss, that uh, that that's that core fear is a fear of death. And so when we when our body tenses around pain, it's because the body, you know, the 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 reason for pain, the you know the evolutionary purpose of why do we have to have pain at all? Why not just have bodies that don't feel pain? is that if we don't feel pain, then when we're in danger and our body is injured or threatened, we know it and we, we take care of ourselves. That's to protect us from dying. Is this making sense? So, the, our whole relationship to pain is related to our relationship to death. And when we're... Well... I don't know how far I can go with this, but uh, if, even if I want to go much further than that. But it's just to, to see that, uh, you know, this. I guess the bigger point to me is that this practice really encompasses everything. And it's, it's, it's about every aspect of our life, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And I, 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 I don't, you know, I have these like, you know, ideas. Of, oh, it'd be good to be able to have a peaceful death. It's 
kind of like, well, I want to have a home birth. But, you know, <laughs> if things start to get messy, you know, give me the drugs. <laughs> and it's the same thing with death. It's like, well, yeah, I want to be conscious when I'm dying, unless it really hurts a lot. And please give me the morphine so I can be peaceful. And then that so... Um, That your that your meditation practice can develop into an addiction. Um, you should only be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how I'm framing it. I, I, I've had the thought of what would because I've had a practice for a long, long time. What would my life be without practice? Uh-huh. It would be ground, maybe groundless, except for my relationship to nature which really holds me. But has that ever come up, especially in your specialty of recovery and addiction, that practice can take that form? I just... Take it, you mean, you mean be a... Uh, a destructive habit? Not destructive, per se, but just one... A compulsive habit? I guess I would come back to the idea of refuge. That that's what practice is supposed to be, is something that you rely on, is something that brings you comfort. And we we don't live independent of anything much, you know. We are dependent on many other people. We're dependent on all kinds of uh, technological and infrastructural systems. We are dependent upon the sun and the air and the earth. You know, so, uh, meditation practice is just another natural <coughs> phenomenon that we depend on. And the thing is that what we're doing in meditation isn't creating something or importing something into our minds or our bodies or into our lives. All we're doing is tapping into our innate capacity to be present, to be peaceful, to be loving, to be wise. You know, all of these are natural human capacities that through conditioning, through life, through society and culture, get lost. And meditation is just bringing us back to something that is a is our birthright. You know, thousands of years ago, long before the Buddha, people discovered that there is this capacity within us. And I suspect that some of the people who discovered that were were the very early hunters, because hunters had to sit 
and wait and be still. And if you sit and wait and are still long enough, this arises naturally. The, the mind becomes focused. Clarity arises. This, it's, you don't actually have to practice to get it. You just have to set up those conditions. Silence, stillness, and time. Those are the things that, that bring forth this, this calm abiding, certainly the peaceful part of meditation. And, and then, you know, people started to realize that we have this capacity, and then they systematized it, and then they invented religions, and then started having wars and fighting about it. <laughs> yeah. That, that's how I see it. You know, there are certain practices. I mentioned jhana practice, concentration practices, that some people feel that there's a, a risk that people will become attached. So, so the traditional teaching is that if you become attached to the pleasurable aspects of meditation, it may distract you from the more important work of developing insight. I think that's, that is a potential, um, but I also think that the pleasurable aspects of meditation are really, really important, and they are very important forms of healing for us. They, heal, they help to heal trauma, and they help to heal many psychological, you know, painful psychological conditions. And so... At times, I think it's, it's rather than pushing people, you should develop insight and stop sitting and just being peaceful <laughs> to uh, allow their process to be natural. You know, if people are getting some peace and healing out of their practice, that's great, and uh, and insight will come as long as they stick with their practice with sincerity. Uh, so I don't I don't believe too much in the idea of getting addicted to um, comfort. I, I, I think we all anybody who's been on a retreat and experienced the the real deep pleasure of meditative calm and peace is going to keep trying to get back to that. You know, it just you just kind of can't avoid it. Up. And whether you're doing it consciously or unconsciously, that's going to be part of what's going on. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, there's a few things I was thinking about. One, and actually, Justin, what you were just saying, um, you know, the Buddha breaks down uh, kusala and akusala. So, wholesome states of mind, cultivating wholesome states of mind, or unwholesome, unskillful, I like to actually use, versus unwholesome. Mm -hmm. So skillful or unskillful. So, you know, what Kevin's talking about is this meditative component, and even in the the jhanas, or pithi, or rapture, mm -hmm. even in those states, we are still cultivating wholesome states of mind. Mm -hmm. And getting attached to them, actually, as, as Kevin and uh, I've also experienced, when we actually get attached to them, they disappear. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a built-in system of like, oh, well, I have to actually continue to be open and, and like cultivating 
wholesome, skillful states without attachment in order to maintain what, you know, what is going to be wholesome and skillful and continuing that. And so if we're feeding the unwholesome, unskillful, then we're living in aversion where, you know, we're constantly kind of, or constantly desirous. So if we're so attached, uh, then we're actually going backwards in our recovery process and in our meditative process. So, uh, I mean, this really boils down to letting go, right? Letting go, even letting, letting go of what's going to happen during meditation. And maybe even letting go of judging yourself based on whether it was pleasant or unpleasant. There's just a couple thoughts I have. Yeah, thank you. And I think having, you know, why are we going to practice except, and why are we going to stay in recovery except that there's some pleasure and benefit that comes through it. So that's a good motivation to keep keep at it, you know, that, that it does, it works, you know. Um, but just as you say, if it's, if you're grasping at it, then yeah, then it stops working. So it, it is a self kind of correcting mechanism. Quite a, kind of remarkable in that way. So, I'm not going to do the piece that I was going to do before lunch because it's really getting to be too close to one and I don't want to start into a whole other piece. Um, so, um, this is fun. Thank you for coming. This is great. Um, you know, this is, a, as I said, kind of a, a new topic for me in terms of this, its focus and um, and so this is, you know, an exploration for me as well to, to uh, both to look at these uh, questions, look at recovery and and our practice uh, through this lens of moving towards uh, more contentment or happiness, uh, and I think even the language we use around that is really important because. For some people, the idea, the word happiness can be a negative trigger, or joy can be like, that's like too much. Um, and So I really like the word contentment. Because that for me, and that I think more accurately uh, captures what both Buddhism and recovery are about. They're, they're not about some high moments. They're about more of a steady all that contentment suggests. And, and since contentment is essentially the, uh, what we can call wishlessness, the, the need for, no, I don't need anything more, then that's exactly what uh, the Four Noble Truths are pointing to. I don't need anything more. So, uh, as I was kind of saying, I'm, I'm, uh, I appreciate you guys just participating and, and helping me to see what's, what are useful ways to talk about this and what, what, are, what are ways to um, just develop the, these ideas in ways that, that really work. Uh, so I'm learning here. So thank you.